Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> Another beautiful day on the Victor Bravo Golf Course. The sun is shining, the birds are about, and there's a sudden buzz in the crowd. Michael Michelson steps up to the tee box. 15th hole here, drivers recommended. <laughs> is he a caveman? Because he suddenly clubbed that one. What do you reckon, George? <laughs> I mean, did he hit that with the dictionary? Because that was a terrible read. <laughs> G'day and welcome, this is Golf, Andrew Dado is my name. Something different for you today. We're going to talk some golf, for sure, but I want to bring you a uniquely Australian story. This is a guy called Mick Collis. As funny as he is inspiring, he is an author, a writer, a rugby commentator, he's a guest speaker, I've seen him speak at a bunch of conferences, very, very funny, very, very clever, and it's a story about representing Australia, something he wanted to do. Um, and actually did manage to do in the most unique and I say sort of quirky ways. That's him texting me now. So listen, Mick Collis, he's an Aussie. He's represented us. Uh, and we'll get to all those things about the movie that's being made about his life. So it is different to our normal golf podcast. But we began where we always begin. And that is, how did he find himself and where is he placed? in the game of golf. When did golf come to him? This is Mick Collis. I know you're gonna really enjoy this podcast. So it, it started when I was around 15 years old. I had a very good mate of mine, um, Matt Parrish was his name, that I went to school with at Marsh Brothers Eastwood. And Matt went on to coach um, various rugby league teams. And I got on very well with his mum who played golf. And so, she she kind of – and one of my mates was going out with one of Matt's sisters. So that was sort of how golf became involved. And and when I was 15, <laughs> I, be, I became obsessed by the game. Right. We used to go to Muirfield um, course, which is up near Carlingford kind of way, I think. Yeah, further, a bit further west. Muirfield just went underwater, I think. Did, Did it? it? No, that was, no, that was Linwood. Muirfield, yeah. I think, was okay. So Muirfield was where I used to play play golf, and we'd go up there after school, which was a you know a good half an hour from from our school. We'd get our parents to drive us, and we'd we'd play we'd play golf. And I I loved the game. I was terrible at it, but for I reckon twelve months, I was obsessed by golf. And then I think when I and I think the first shot I hit was a really good shot 
and, and, I, and I thought, I'm a natural. I'm going to become a professional golfer. Yeah. And at that stage, I was playing um, – I just started playing rugby as well that Matt got me into, and I was enjoying my rugby, and I thought, oh, what's it going to be? Golf, rugby, did both. Then I found I was getting no better at all at golf, so I sort of stuck with the rugby, and then and golf kind of dropped off the radar. And then I picked it up again when I had a mate called Steve Porch – who was a Victorian guy that used to – he was a professional golfer and used to come across to WA. Uh, by this stage, I'd moved to WA and um, and he would come across here and play the WA circuit and he asked me, could I caddy for him? It was called the Heineken. It was the, the Heineken yeah. Masters at the Vines. At the Vines, yeah. yeah. Of, yeah. And a fantastic tournament, like a really mm. big big international tournament. So he said, could I caddy? And I said, look, I don't, I don't know anything really about golf, but I can – lift heavy things so I'm happy to to carry your bag so I've gone up to um to the vines with him in my HQ wagon we've driven up to the vines and I've gone into the little change room and I've got all this and I love kit and I've been given a Heineken, <laughs> two Heineken t-shirts two Heineken shorts um pairs of socks sun visors all this fantastic Heineken kit which I was so excited about so I got myself changed in the thing and we went out and every time that he came over here there was probably about three years in a row and every day I reckon it was 40 degrees and right. I'm, I'm carrying this massive pro golf. bag. When I played golf, I had about six clubs. This guy must have had about 60 in this bag <laughs> and it weighed a ton. And professional golfers, they walk so fast. So he'd, he'd tee off and he'd give me his club and I'd stand there and I'd do the, the cloth and I'd, I'd wipe it for him. And by the time I'd wiped it and stuck it back in the bag, he's about 50 metres down the <laughs> fairway. So I'm sprinting down this fairway to try and catch up with him because he's turning around saying, where am I? And then he'd look at the he, – he was the one that had to do all the marking and the measurements off the – how far he was from the tee. I didn't know. I couldn't help him at all. Yeah. So he'd, he'd say, oh, give me a six. So but, I'd, but, I'd give him a six. And, and but that was, was there, there must have been a point at some point during one of those three tournaments where you've actually offered him some – No. Look, mate, this one <laughs> this one perhaps left and right. No, I offered, him, I offered him nothing. But I loved I, – I, I've always enjoyed being what I call on the other side of the rope. So in – if it's if um, with you know with rugby, I do some stuff with stand sport. I like being out there on the field, you know, with your pass, just past where the normal putters can be. And as a caddy, mm. like everyone else is on that side of the rope, and I was on on the good side of the rope. So I was standing on the green. I remember the 18th in my first my first day there, and I'm I'm holding the the pin, and I'm just looking around at <laughs> this all the stands and all yes. the people, and I and I'm looking around, and he's going Mick Pin, and I'm just looking around, he's going Mick Pin. And I'm thinking, wow, how good is this? I'm out on the green. He's going, Mick. I'm oh, sorry, mate. I've had to pull the pin out and he's had his putt. But I I, just, I really loved – and we played a game with Roger Davis, which was great because he had a big gallery following him around. Yeah. And it was just um, – yeah, I just, I just loved the experience of, of being out there in the middle, even though I would have loved to have been a player. And it gave me a whole new – appreciation of how good good golfers are in mm. terms of like I'd, I'd look at a thing and it, it, I look I looks about looks about 100 I'll take a, I'll take a four iron because I had no idea whereas they they'd almost pick clubs to the meter and they were yeah. so consistent with the way they hit that they would actually land it in terms of a distance where they thought it would land like just it, it blew me away so did, that so did that genuinely surprise you I mean yes. I'm, surpri- I'm surprised <laughs> that it surprised me it surprised me because I just I had never been exposed to golf at that level before like I right. go with my mates and we we try and hit it as far as we could and that was what we thought you know basically golf was and then try and make as few putts as you can but those guys were so technical and clinical and that mm. that was the difference that I just did not know existed and I, and I loved it there's, a, there's a sort of a – I get a sense of um, symmetry with with your golfing career and 
the other things that you do in terms of you thought you were going to go all the way with it. Yeah. Right. Now I've been really lucky to hear, so you know, listener, that I've been lucky to hear Mick speak and, and tell his big story, which we'll get to some of it anyway because it's part of a, an even bigger story and it's one of the best stories going around in Australia that you've been telling for a while, Mick. Yeah. Um, and you're getting to a film. But let me go back to that when you're a 15-year-old. What was it that obsessed you from the beginning? Was I think it- I think it was the fact that I like had my, my mates my mates played and I thought I'll oh, I'll give it a go because you know you're 15 you, you try anything and I, I honestly think I was a three iron I remember at Muirfield and it was just straight off the middle and mm. I just thought wow how good's this like and I think that's the thing about golf if you have one good shot it keeps you coming back because you think oh maybe I can do that a bit more often so I had a really good shot and my mate said oh mate you could be really good at this and I'm thinking oh how <laughs> my mates think I'm going to be a good golfer yeah. so I, I just I, I just really enjoyed doing that and every now and then you'd hit a good shot and you think wow maybe I, I could be good so it's one of those games that it just it teases you the whole time yes and I think the better you get the more it teases you yeah, well, I so never, you, yeah, I never achieved that next level of getting better than what I was. I actually didn't improve in twelve months. Right. Do you play any more now? Uh, we've got a little. There's a little. Um, so I'm, where I'm in Perth, there's a Claremont. It's a little nine-hole uh, chip and chase kind of thing. So it's a, you know, maybe a three iron or a four iron and a and a putter. So you need to take a couple of clubs around. So I played that I reckon about two months ago, and again, really enjoyed it. Hit one good shot. Which will will keep me going back, but I don't I don't play a lot. But I do when I do play, I do enjoy it. I don't like. I think golf takes too long, and I have to walk too far to play <laughs> eighteen holes. Whereas a nine hole, those, that's this little nine hole course. It really it's they're all par threes, so it's it's great. You can get have it done in an hour and a half. Have a beer at the end, and, and you're yeah. up. It's done. So I really I just enjoy that. But I don't know there's something nice about. I mean, you're outside and you're out amongst the trees and the. the the grass is nice and um, yeah. it's it's a very nice environment to, to play a, a sport in. All right. How did you make uh, Steve Porch end up? I did Google stalk him earlier and I saw Did he come he, up? Did he come up? Did he appear? He did, he did appear. He, he appeared with his um, current world ranking of 3,241. <laughs> 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 so he was. <laughs> I don't want to laugh. It was I'd be 25,000. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have been 25 million. But his, <laughs> his best ranking was 738. But it's interesting. Like, this is the whole thing about the internet is that. The history is always there, you know. So it says, you know, two European tournaments, no money, yeah. whatever. It's so hard. It's so hard. And that, and again, that's the thing. I thought that all professional golfers, you know, drove Mercedes and, and had a private jet. Like that's just what you think with private golfers. And these guys, there was three of them from Victoria that would, would come across. Once once Steve Porch knew me, then his, his other two mates, then they tagged along. So I was living in Claremont with five of us, five mates just renting a house. So Steve and the golfers had come across, so they'd live with us. They'd just sleep on the floor mm. because they, they had to pay their own way to tournaments, had to look after their own accommodation. Only the, the big players could actually get paid to turn up at these places. So they're just real punters trying to have a crack. So they'd sleep on the floor at our place. Um, we'd drive them up. There was one time they were here for a month and for the three of them, they went home with a combined total of sixty dollars, so, <laughs> so it was just a real. It was a real eye opener to see them mm. that they play. If they miss the cut, they make no money. Yeah, a lot of the the minor tournaments they were playing in WA, there wasn't a lot of money anyway. The Vines was the big payout if they actually got through the cut. So most years, I think Steve made the cut, so he, he picked up some money. But watching him, like every putt for him was basically 
his his rent or his his next meal or like the, the the added pressure of not just trying to win but actually that's that's your wage and if you it's like if you go to work and you stuff up well you're not getting paid today like that that mental side of it for yeah. me was again another another level of what the these guys trying to that are that are professional golfers on the tour but the pressure of them trying to just get by on their golf was was immense yeah so i think i think i think we all know that but what we don't know is what it's like to live with someone like that in your house yeah and, and be- so how did him and his golfing mates actually deal with that like were they good humored about it were they they were, yeah, because he because cat ashes. <laughs> no, they, they <laughs> like he had a dog made. <laughs> they were lucky because they, they were young. He had a, he had a degree behind him, and he said he was going to give himself five years, five years to see if he could make it. So while it was, he really wanted to do well. If if he didn't, he he did have a backup plan. So he'd get shitty if he you know played a bad shot or, or missed the cut, but. They were only probably, you know, mid twenties. They were they were touring Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, ha- having beers, ladies at our local. We'd go to this same local, you know, week week in week out and get nothing. He'd turn up with his <laughs> with his PGA um, golf badge on his belt, and he wouldn't be coming home for the night. And I'm thinking, well, how does that work? So yeah, they, yeah. certainly they wouldn't have been making much money, but geez, they were having a good time. And because yeah. they're all they're all single. And I said, look, they're just travelling around Australia, just playing golf. It's a, it's a great gig. Do they just didn't earn much money while they were doing it? Yeah, and maybe that's the guts of it. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's part of the lure of golf. What about Roger Davis? So you had a round with him. Had a round with him, and again, he was, it was, he was because I knew, I knew him. He was a big name in Australian golf, and again, to watch someone like him, um, be, you know, be able to actually stand on the, on the tee next to Roger Davis and and watch Roger Davis and again looking at all the other people that were behind that rope mm-hmm. looking at me looking at Roger Davis <laughs> I felt I felt so special it was and I remember there's a couple of times where um where Steve had, he'd put out and and he'd give me the ball and there'd be a kid walking along and I'd give the kid the ball thinking I'm you know I'm a, I'm a good player and Steve would go mate where's my ball I go oh shit I just gave it to that kid Steve and he's going mate don't give away my ball <laughs> so, I paid for those balls it was a real learning experience and if he had a lucky ball I'd just give it to some little kid that was um that was walking past so yeah Roger was great and again just a, it was fun for me to to spend some time you know Roger Davis would not remember that in the slightest but for me it's one of those memories that I've yeah. got that I cherish because he was a big name I was out there watching him and having as I said having other people watch and, me watch and, him. and did, <laughs> that no one even looked at you no no one cared about me but, but I thought <laughs> I thought they were looking at me in my Heineken outfit yeah yeah fantastic um it's in th- what I was saying about or thinking about the symmetry is they think the bit about the kit as well so yeah, this, yeah. You know, so you thought you were going to go all the way in golf you thought you were going to go all the way in rugby and that didn't quite work out. What what was it? What was the lure of you? Like eventually you you were able to play for Australia. Find something, yes. Um, but what was it about that the, the what was the lure of playing for Australia other than kit? Or was it just kit? A lot of it was kit, because I remember I used to watch the and just before we go into that kit, I remember at, at the Heineken, and I love free stuff as well. And mm. and because I like the kit was free and the hat you should was work free. on TV. I know you work on the radio, but <laughs> yeah, I should. I should. And and I remember that because it, it was sponsored by um, Gatorade or Powerade, one of the aids that was out at the time. So each at each hole, they had big ice barrels full of Powerade or Gatorade. So me with my mentality of liking free stuff, and ankles was hot. Every hole, I'd be grabbing a, a Powerade because it, it was free. I'm thinking, this is saving me $4 here. So I'd drink it. I reckon by the ninth, I was absolutely busting because I'd drunk 
the best part of nine litres of Powerade. And I had to go behind a tree. <laughs> and probably, to, probably pinging as well. <laughs> and I had to go behind a tree to relieve myself. And I reckon my urine was blue. I'd had, <laughs> much, I'd had that much Powerade in me. It was uh, extraordinary. But the lure, yeah, the lure of, of playing for Australia and the kit, kit was great because you'd watch um, – I remember I made a couple of junior representative teams. and um, In rugby? In rugby, yes. Yeah. So I made the Sydney under-16s and um, – and, you know, even some Eastwood District stuff. And you'd get – in the Sydney under-16s, we, we got blazers, uh, a dress jumper, a tie, pair of dress pants. We got dress socks, running shoes, um, shorts, tracksuits, all this gear. And it was great. And everyone wanted – I had some mates the year before me made it. And all you, all you cared about was – we didn't care where you were going – what kit did you get? And it's always a competition who got the best kit. So when I got my Sydney 16s, I just outlined it all over my bed and my mates came around and looked at all my kit. And then you see the cricketers come through after the ashes or whatever it is and they've got those massive big coffins that they come through the airport with mm. just full of kit. And you see the, the wallabies, the same thing. They've got so much kit. And I was living with, um, with Marty Roebuck at the time who went on to play for the Wallabies and as, as he was making his way through, when he'd go away on tour, just the amount of gear and I just thought, how good would that be to have all this gear with Australia written over all your gear? So that was a that was a big driver. And then my wife was playing water polo for Australia. So she had, you know, track suits and T-shirts with Australia and I thought, well, how good would it be to to be in a team where you get all this kit that's got Australia emblazoned all over it and you can you can wear that around and have people looking at you because you're playing for Australia. Think, yeah, yeah. It's like you're representing us. Yeah. You are us. You're us, yeah. Right. Well, you got your dream in a sense. Um, well, no, you did get – you definitely I've did get your dream. dream. Yeah. You definitely got your dream. So, sorry, I, I didn't mean to and, – and so one of the things – and when, when you read – when if you Google stalk Mick and I suggest that you do, if you've got a footy club or a sports club or something, Mick has the most terrific – like genuinely terrific story to tell – um, a uniquely Australian story. It's one of hardship and battle and struggle mm. and um, the ultimate triumph. Well, you know, in a sense, <laughs> yeah. you, got, you got the gear, mate. So um, you got yourself. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to tell your story, but I, I don't expect you to tell the whole story because what I actually want to talk. What I really want to do talk to you about is make it the film that you're making of your life story. Yeah, which is a nearly impossible project in itself. Yes. So just give us the – do you mind giving us the abbreviated version? Of how, of how, of, of how the how story you, came about? Of how you represented Australia and when you thought this would be a good idea. Because, you've got, you know, you've written five books. Um, oh, the one I like the most is um, Australia's Toughest Sports People, sports people yeah. with McCosker on the cover. Yep. Um, and it's just, a great, it's just a great, great collection of stories about how hard we are. Yes. It's part of your plan – to see yourself in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I would ever make that. I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, and again, I, I loved rugby and I had some, my problem is I have some early success and then I, and then I just peter out. And it was mm. the same with rugby because back in those days when I was playing, and again, I started at, at 15 and um, when Matt Parrish again said to me, you know, why don't you come down and play rugby? So I went down and played. And and of course, I was tall. Mm. In those days, there was no jumping in lineouts. There was no lifting in lineouts. You had to jump. So if, if all the second rows at the time were, were just these tall string bean kids that could jump high and had long arms, and that was me. So when I've turned up to under 15 rugby and I'm you know, six inches taller than the next second row. Everyone thought, oh, wow, how good's this guy? So I was lucky that my height uh, sort of covered my my lack of ability. Your inadequacies, yes. Yeah, but yes. I mean, I, I, look, I was okay, but I was never going to be great. And I was never, you know, I, I avoided contact at, at all. Occasions, <laughs> which when, you're, when you're playing rugby is not a – it's not really one of the traits that – 
coaches are looking for when you get to that next level. I remember I was at, at, tra- at training one day at Eastwood. I was in playing, I might have been playing third grade. And at training, I got put up to second grade just to do some scrummaging. And I was playing at, at lock. And so I packed in between these two massive second rowers. And as I'm packing them in there, the pressure on my head was extraordinary. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, this is really hurting my head. And I thought, I don't think that's something any wallaby has ever yeah, yeah, done. Yeah. This is really hurting my head. So I was at third grade thinking, this is really hurting my head. And that's when I realized I'm probably not ever going to really make it as a as a rugby player. So, so but the, the, the dream was always there. And I, I did always want to play for Australia. Yeah, and it's interesting those that those those moments when you do get to play some representative level that, that in the back of your mind and you, you are going to go or you are going to have your chance. Yeah, and I'm sure for parents as well. Like, I mean, I've oh, never had that opportunity. Like, never represented. I barely represent the family, but um, <laughs> but our son made it to the Swans Academy. You know, yeah, so right the, the junior yep. Swans thing. Yep. And I saw the I knew like he was all, but he was the tall kid, so he was just there for little kids to run around and jump on and take marks over. <laughs> and it was pretty obvious to me pretty early on. And when he finally got punted from the team, the guy said, "Look, his career's not over." I went, "No, no, no it, it is. It's, <laughs> it's, That's it. It's, it's going to be okay." That's so, what, just with your parents, with you know your early success, how did they see that? Well, look, they- I think oh, I think they I think they got very excited by it all and and quite. And because again, my man was a leaguey, and so when I when I switched to rugby union, it was like for him changing religions because mm. you know he'd grown up Western suburbs of Sydney. It's all about rugby league. Then all of a sudden, I'm playing you know rugby union. But he came across, and he was great. He was always throughout my career. He was the manager of every team that I ever went through. And then when I went to rugby, he became the manager, and he he just really embraced rugby, loved the people at rugby. And then he ended up doing some um, sports trainers courses, and then ended up with his own career in rugby, strapping. Wow. He, he did the Sydney Under 16s. He did the Waratahs for a while. He did did some Australian Navy. He had, a, he had a great career, did Eastwood first grade for a long time. So he actually got his own career out of, out of rugby. So so they were, they right. were very, they were very uh, supportive and they enjoyed it. They enjoyed, you know, we, when I was in that Sydney team, we went to the Australian championships were in Melbourne. So he, he, him and mum and my sister flew down to Melbourne to watch, you know, watch me play. And there was an Australian under 17s team was picked at the end of that tournament. And I was named as a standby player, which basically, I mean, if someone else got injured in my position that I'd get, um, I'd get brought into the squad. So I, you know, I trained my ass off for about two months in case someone got injured, but they never did. So that was, that was kind of as close as I got at that stage, but yeah, they, they enjoyed it. And, um, I think, like any parent, they were you know they were proud, and that Sydney Sixteens was was a that was a good team to make at that age. So I think mm. they they walked a little bit taller because their kid was in it. So I, I you know I slowly let them down as the years progressed. But at, at that time, they kind of I think they thought that I would go on and do something with my rugby career. But that, uh, that as history shows, that didn't eventuate. And have you just on the last bit about this? Did you have you still kept that gear? Like they yeah. have God, yeah. some elements of it. Yeah, God, yeah. yeah. God, God, yeah. I've still got my blaze. I've still got my Sydney blaze. My kids, my boys actually went to a um, fancy dress party probably <laughs> last year and they, they wore my, my Sydney blazer. And I don't know whether it's shrunk, but I must have been tiny because I'm sure it's shrunk because this little blazer now is so small. And I remember I thought I was this big unit when I was 16, yeah. but I, I must have shrunk but it, because it, it honestly looks too tiny. It looks like about a seven-year-old's blazer. So, yeah, so I've got, I've got the blazer from that. And I've got a bag – in my room, which my wife hates, that it's just full of old. Um, like I'm going to put my my. I think it was my first pair of Eastwood District Junior socks. I've still got. I've got my first Eastwood District jersey that I've kept in there. Um, old rep jerseys. I've just. I've kept. I've kept all that stuff. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I know I, I spoke at a function the other day and Justin Langer was there, the former Australian opener, and who's just recently been uh, removed as the Australian cricket uh, coach mm. and he spoke and I like I the era that I grew up with was you know watching him and Matthew Hayden and Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne and Ricky Potting like it was a it was a great era of of cricket for us to grow up and watch and, and I said to him at the end after I heard him speak I said to him that I would love to because I was emceeing it and um and I said to the boss can we do some Q&A and she thought I meant with the audience, but in which he said yes. I just, I just started talking. I started talking to Justin, and, and it's like this with the hands yeah, up. Go, no, no, you you go, wait, hands wait. down. Yeah, hands down. I've got this. Leave it with me. I've got the mic. Yeah, I've got the mic. So I, I did actually let them have a go after I'd spoke to him for a while. But I said to him that I would love to have played cricket for Australia, and I would have loved him to have been my coach mm. because he was just that old school that that. You get in and you gritty and you protect your um, your wicket. And I've been watching the Alan Border um, doco on on Fox, and again, AB just I, I love the bloke and the way that they would go out there and you'd do anything to protect your wicket. And they were they were just you know they were they were like you and me. They 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 were just I don't know they they weren't on million dollar contracts and yeah. you know driving around in, in super sports cars. They were just they were just punters like you and me that were just gritty and they did what they want and we're all incredibly proud of them whereas the Australian cricket team at the moment like I you know I was quite happy that they got beat in that third test in India because I'm just a bit off them they just don't have that same attachment to me as they did in the past and again I don't you know we're talking about protecting the past and remembering the past I don't know whether the current generation like is what they're seeing now where it's all about yourself is that is that what they think is that what they want and that's normal for them i you know i don't know it's it's a because i said to justin if i was the the coach i would have i would have cut those guys because we were relating into a business sense and we're saying if you've got staff that that are toxic and you don't like the staff if you're driving the culture get rid of them and i said why didn't you get rid of some of those players just cut them and he said look it it, it became a bit more complicated than than him just being able to do that so Mm. it's it's weird that these players now have got so much control and I've always thought if you pick a coach, the coach is the one that steers the ship. And if the players don't want to buy into what the coach is saying, the player goes. But now mm-hmm. the, the board appoints a coach. And if the players don't like what the coach is doing, the players say, well, get rid of the coach. Like it's yeah. just a really weird system at the moment. He's, he's a pretty intense guy, isn't he? Too? Incredibly intense, but passionate. Like he's mm-hmm. just, he was so passionate about, about, 
playing for Australia and and doing your best and having your mates support you and and getting out there and making sure that the the fans were happy and the and the, the, the country was proud of, of what you were doing and it was just um it was it was great. I could have sat listened to him for a, and just yeah. telling the story about his test debut and you know batting with David Boone and all that sort of stuff was just I, I just absolutely lapped it all up. I loved just, it. Just just with the cricket and that and that sense of history in Alan Border. And I don't know. I don't. Is it true? Maybe you might know if it's true that when Dean Jones made those runs in India, you know, yeah, whatever, yep. he made his two hundred and yep. something, and he was cramping and shitting and vomiting and yep. all that sort of stuff. Yep. And apparently Border went out there and said or got a message to him at lunchtime or something and, and said, listen, if it's too hard for you, mate, I'll just send out a Queenslander to do yeah. it. So, because so, Dean Jones was batting with Alan Border at the time. Oh, okay, right. And and Dean Jones, he got to about 180 and, yeah, he he – he was basically delirious. He was, you know, wetting himself, throwing up every two minutes. He couldn't run singles. He was just hitting boundaries because he couldn't run. And he went up to Alan Border and said, mate, look, I, I don't think I can go on. And that's when AB said, because Greg Ritchie was the next man in, he said, yeah. you know, okay, you go off. I'll get a real man out here. I'll get a Queenslander. That's so right. I, in, in the book, Australia's Toughest Sports People, I actually interviewed I interviewed Dean Jones and I said to Dean, because that's the, a legendary Australian story, mm. and I said to Dean, I said, did he actually say that? And Dean Jones said to me, I can't remember him saying it, but I'm sure he would because it's something that Alan Border would have said. And then in the doco, Alan Border said that's what he did say. But actually, Dean had had no recollection of it because he was so delirious at the time. Yeah, there'd be a pretty so, good but, chance he wouldn't remember that yeah, much. But a great, again, and it's that that it's just that hardness that, I mean, one, you wouldn't be allowed to do it now because the medicos and the do-gooders have got in and said, oh, you can't <laughs> play out there. If they're, if they're vomiting, you've got to look after them. But yeah. in, in those days... That's just what you did, and it was it was a different time. And for me, that's what that's what it took to play for Australia. And I didn't have it. I'm the first to admit that I'd I'd put my hand up and say, "Mate, I'm I'm coming off." But the guys that this almost this reverential way that we looked up to these players, but it was because that's what they did, and that's what made them different to us. Yeah, but you did play for Australia. I did play for Australia. So you did play for So let's get to that. Finally, I got there. Which is my second favourite book of yours. <laughs> <laughs> Full Contact Sudoku. Yeah. Um, and it's terrific. And and really this is the guts of what you talk about when you do your keynote yes. speeches. Yeah. It's really funny. Uh, it's really passionate and it's a genuinely good story. But it's, a, a, again, a, as I said earlier, it's a great Australian story. So you wanted to play for Australia. How did you come up with Sudoku? Yeah, so, yes, played a lot of sports, failed at all of them, but I always had that burning desire to play for for Australia. And I don't know – I don't know where that came from. I just think, you know, looking at guys like – you know, I loved Dougie Walters when I was a kid and I loved Alan Border. And I remember I went out onto the SCG one day when at the end of play, back in the day when you could run onto the SCG without being fined $5,000 and being out for life. (laughs) When you're allowed to. When you're allowed to. Someone was expected to scream. Yeah, exactly. And I remember when Doug was walking off, I went out and I, and I patted, I pat Doug Walters on the back, and and I just thought to myself, how how cool would that be to have people coming out and wanting to wanting to pat you on the back just for doing what you love doing and walking on. Imagine walking onto the SCG or the MCG on the Boxing Day Test, just walking out into the middle with ninety thousand people all there cheering and just watching you, and it was. And I remember I was at the service station one day with um, Marty Roebuck, the Wallaby, and a guy just come and said, oh, oh, great game, Marty, you know, well done, and shook his hand. And I thought, how cool would that be to have people, just random people <laughs> coming up to you and saying that they like what you do because of what you've done. And so I, I kind of had that, the desire of wanting to play for Australia for the, 
like being a good sportsman, but I also had that element of me that was that that ego side of thing that I wanted to have massaged by strangers telling me how good I was. So uh, I never actually got to do it, but the desire was always there. Yeah. And I, I ended up going up to Brisbane with a mate to watch a, a Bledisloe test match, and he he pulled out – his TV screen wasn't working in the back of his chair, so he's pulled out a book of Sudoku puzzles, which I – Quantus, was it? was Quantus. It was, yeah, it was Qantas. <laughs> and I'd never seen it. I'd never seen Sudoku. I asked him what it was and he said Sudoku and, I, and I, he, he just basically told me how to play it. And I'd had the right number of beers and I just said that for some reason it came into my head that if we if we actually created a, a world Sudoku championships that we could pick ourselves in the Australian team and play for Australia. So that's what set the weekend off. We thought, yep, when we get back, we'll actually we'll do that. We'll run it out of rugby club. Our mates from... New Zealand can play for the Kiwis, the Pommies could play for England. So that was what we were going to do. Got home, discovered there already was an Australian, a world Sudoku championship. So I set about trying to find out how to get to actually play at that one. And to cut a long story short, there's an organisation called the World Puzzle Federation. And to be selected for your country, you needed to be selected and have that selection ratified by your country's member of this World Puzzle Federation. And Australia didn't actually have a member, so I've applied to become the member. <laughs> I became the member. Like- <laughs> so I, I, I was all of a sudden – so I'm the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation and it is my job to actually organise an Australian championships and then pick the Australian team and then send them to the next world championship, which was in India. So with that power, by the power vested in me, by the yeah. world – This is sounding a lot like a sporting Ponzi scheme, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, basically. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't heard this part – I've never heard this part of the story. I don't think you've said this part of the story. I Yes, I, I do I do say this part. I do say okay. this part. So basically by the power vested in me by the World Puzzle Federation, I've arranged an Australian championships and because that's what my role entailed. And only four of us turned up, which was me and my three mates. So, did you have to advertise it? The, well, the championships. Theoretically, I was supposed to advertise it, Andrew, but I didn't, have, <laughs> I didn't have time to do that. I thought about putting a sign up at the IGA, just saying, "Well, Australian Sudoku Championships at the OBH on Sunday." But yeah. I thought if five people see that, and they tell, they think it's a good idea, and tell five people, and then they tell five, you know, all of a sudden I got 150 people turning up, so I got it, it became a logistical nightmare. So I just thought I invited myself and my three mates, and because um, you've got to start somewhere, Andrew, mm-hmm. you know that that was the first Australian Championships happened to have four people in it, and so we had a few rounds of beers and a bowl of bowl of chips, and then. I announced the Australian team to. Hang on, hang on. Did you did you play? No, 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 no. We didn't actually play any games. So we, um, I just stood up in the pub and announced announced the Australian team. And to this day, that's a that's something that was very special for me. I remember my wife after a Australian water polo championships, they picked an Australian team for one a World Cup or something or other, and her surname was Wheelock. So she was a W, and they used to announce it alphabetically. And I remember standing on the side of the pool next to her as the selectors are announcing this Australian team. And I, in my head, I'm trying to count, you know, how many people have they got? And geez, they're not up to the Ws yet. Oh, they've, they've got 10 and there's only three spots left and they're at the they're at the R's and, and they've announced, you know, Wheelock. And I've always thought, how, how amazing would it be to be in that position where you're waiting to hear your name called out as a member of an Australian team. So I, I wanted to replicate that for my own experience. So that's what I, I stood up in the pub and I, I've announced the Australian team and I left my name till last. And I remember thinking as I was reading them out that, you know, there was one spot left. I'd done the calculations in my head. I'd announced, I'd announced three names. There was one name left. I'm thinking, oh, God, I, you know, everything crossed. And then I announced my own name. And um, that, where yeah, what a moment. 
to, to hear your name called out for the first time as part of a fully-fledged official Australian team to tour India, yeah, man, just um, yeah, extraordinary moment. That, that's, that's one thing I will never forget. That was, that was a dream come true to hear that. Did your mates have understand what you were actually going through? Like, like in that – so in the true sense, right, to, to actually in the true sense of it, you, you, you were picked to play for an Australian team. Yes. Genuinely so. Genuinely, right? yeah. So you're genuinely representing your country. Yes. So as funny as it, the whole thing is, and it is a very funny story, there was genuine feelings there for you. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. And the yeah. four of us, because we'd all, we'd all played rugby together, uh, so we all played it, and we all, that's how we all became mates. We playing for the University of, of WA together, and we all ended up playing for Western Australia, and we all would have loved. We're all big Wallabies fans, and would have, we all would have loved to have played for Australia. But none of us, none of us were good. We all we all trained hard, and um, you know we, we got the most out of our abilities. But we were never good enough to play for Australia. So when this opportunity came to actually play for Australia, the guys took it. And I remember I, because once I had this power to actually pick an Australian team, I I didn't really know what to do with it initially. And I've I've emailed. One of the guys, Sandy Sutherland, who was living in Switzerland at the time, he'd moved over there with work. And I just emailed him and I said, look, Sandy, um, would you like to represent Australia and travel to India for the – represent Australia in Sudoku and travel to India for the World Sudoku Championships? And he emailed me back and just said, I don't know what Sudoku is, but I'm sure it's nothing I can't learn on the day. I'm in. <laughs> and, then, and then he said, as long as it's with his brother and Skiffo. So, uh, so all of a sudden this – I didn't know what to do with the power and all of a sudden the – this, this, the stars of a line and Sandy had said he'd do it if it was these guys and I thought well that's they're the guys I would have picked so it just yeah everything lined up and so the four of us you know and I remember we had a documentary crew follow us to India and there's a doco called Colours by Numbers the Sir documentary and in it they show <laughs> they show Hamish for the first time putting on his Australian blazer and he just says you know I've waited a long time to do this and he and he just put this thing on and you know his chest filled out and look we're all very proud and when we're over there it's not like there was an Australian team and we've rocked up and saying oh no we're the Australian team like we were over there and and we've sort of looked at each other and said we are we're it we are the Australian team I'm I'm representing you I'm representing my family I'm representing you know 25 million people in Australia we are the four guys with the responsibility of representing Australia at these world championships. So for us, it was a very real thing. And I can walk into a room now with, you know, John Eels, Steve Waugh, Ricky Ponting, <laughs> and I'll, st- and I'll stand, stand alongside those and we can all say that we've represented Australia and yeah. I stand there just as proud because who's to say that one's better than the other? Certainly not me. I just happened to represent Australia in Sudoku. Was, was there a – I mean, I'm sure it was fun walking through the airport because you always look, don't you? Like, oh, you know, someone's yeah. wearing a – It was fantastic. It was fantastic because I always look at teams and it's very hard to see a team walk into an airport and, and not look at – at who they are, and that's what it was great. We had the we were in the number ones because it was a travel day, and that's what we wore when we were travelling was the, the number ones. And people would look at the crest, and and they'd sort of sit back, and you could just see the look on their face when they've taken the trouble of looking and thinking, oh, you know, Australian Sudoku. <laughs> they must be smart. Like you could just see them thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. going on their head about these, these four clever guys. They don't look smart. That look, that they don't look smart, <laughs> but they they dress smart and they must be smart. Yeah, so it was it was great. And again, it was that thing about. That ego of having people, you know, and there was a guy. It was funny. We got to Singapore and um, we were on one of those travelator things, and a and a guy from. 
Perth on the same plane as us. He came up and said, oh, because we had a whole lot of stuff on. We were on the TV and various shows. And he came up and said, oh, mate, I saw you guys on TV. You know, good luck over there in India. You know, well done. And I just thought, how cool is this? Just people patting us yeah. on the back, wishing us all the best playing for Australia. So did you, did you ever have a, the sense actually when the tournament began, when, uh, in, your, in, your, in your playing kit, your different kit, whatever that was? Yeah, number fives. Number, number fives. Five. Did you have a sense of – we don't actually deserve to be here representing Australia. Like no, know, no, no, the- no. I um, <laughs> not at all. I, <laughs> I, 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 I ended up. So my dream was always to play for Australia. So once I, once I picked myself and I was in the Australian team, that was a big box that I ticked. Like I, I've, I've made the Australian team, and it was only. And it's a lot like you know we criticise our Olympic athletes a lot, especially the swimmers, because they get to an Olympic Games. And they never perform as well as we hope. And the, the criticism is that for them, it's all about making the Olympic team. And then once they make the Olympic team, they kind of take their foot off the accelerator and they, they tend to coast a little bit and they don't perform well. So I think that that's a criticism that could have been directed at me because I was very determined to make an Australian team. I made that Australian team and it was only on the way to Singapore in my number ones. We got about an hour out of Singapore and I said to Skiffo that, I don't know how to play Sudoku. <laughs> so he sat with me with the um, – we pulled out the two in-flight magazines and he's going, okay, we'll do it on the clock. We'll race against each other. He explained how to do it. I tried to do the first one. I got that wrong, did the second one wrong. He ended up pulling his book out that he originally pulled out back on the way to Brisbane and showed me how to do it. And I got one of those puzzles out just as we were taxiing into Singapore Airport. So that was, that was a confidence boost for me knowing that I knew what to do. But when we got to game day – and I've turned over my puzzle booklet. And I only thought that the only Sudoku puzzles in existence were the ones you see in the paper every day. But when I've turned over my puzzle booklet and opened up the first page, and I've seen this version of Sudoku that I just, I did not know <laughs> how to start it. And that's when I was thinking to myself, that's the only time I had genuine fear that I was going to let Australia down because I never wanted to embarrass Australia. I always wanted to represent Australia with as much um, ability as I could and as much passion. And I'm at this thing that I, it could have been written in Russian. I, I did not know how to start it. So I've gone to the next one, couldn't do that. And then I finally found that the third page, which was the classic puzzle from the paper. And we had 45 minutes to try and do 12 puzzles. So I just got stuck into that one. And I finished that one in 41 minutes. And I remember at the end of the <laughs> end of the round when the lady's done the bell and said, you know, that's it, time's up for the first round. I've looked across at Hamish, who was next to me, and I said, how did you go? And he's given me the fist bump and said, I got one. And he said, how did you go? And I said, mate, I got one. And we were both so proud that we had completed a Sudoku puzzle, like a five-star Sudoku puzzle at a World Championships. And that, that was – it still remains one of the most satisfying moments of my life because I'd actually finished a puzzle against all odds in that pressure cooker situation of a World Sudoku Championships. And it was, it was great. So once I'd got one – then I realised that I I wasn't going to let Australia down because I'd actually got five points. I was on the board for Australia, and and that was a that was an important moment. And I always liken it to and again, look, we, we were the Australian team. That's that's who that's who the selected had picked. So so we were the ones. And it's like if if we're at the Olympic Games and and the, everyone that's that's a runner gets COVID and they ring you up, they realise you've been down south in your holiday house, and they ring up Andrew and they say, Andrew Dado. All the runners ahead of you are crook. We need you to run for Australia in the 100 metres. You'll put your hand up and you'll go, yep, you'll get your kit. You'll be on that start line and you will bust your ass. 
100 metres, you're not going to win, but you're not going to run down the, the straight, you know, wave into the crowd. You'll put your head down and you'll give it everything you've got. And that's what we did. We didn't have as much ability as everyone else, but we put our heads down and we went as hard as we could for Australia. Great. <laughs> did you what, – what, 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 what were the other players like? Uh, like as, you know, as, if you guys, you guys are all former athletes and rugby players and yep. of varying abilities. Yep. Were the Sudoku players from around the world – the good ones. Yep. The national representatives like yep. you. Like myself. Yeah. Did, did you see a physical resemblance? Uh, no. A lot of those people I don't think had ever been outside. <laughs> we got on the bus. We got on the bus from Goa Airport to go to the to the hotel and, and the, look, the guy, again, you know, it was great. The guys, we rocked up at, at the airport and there's a man holding a sign saying World Sudoku Championship competitors and that we thought, that's us. So we followed the bloke. We got on the bus and the Belgium team was on there. I think the Chinese team and um, and maybe the lady from Luxembourg. And there was all these purple curtains and all these guys on this bus and the girls on the bus had their heads down and were doing puzzles. We have got on the bus and we thought, God, we're in India here. So we've opened up all the curtains and we're looking out the window and they're all like, no, the light, the light. <laughs> So we've got we've got down there, and I took a I took a cricket bat and a ball because I thought we would play the Pommies and the Indians in some beach cricket. I thought what a what a great thing to do. We could have a test match while we're there as well. So we've gone um, down to the beach. No one else went down to the beach. We went to the bar, and we were surprised by the number of people in the bar. But they were all just doing puzzles. None of them were drinking. And then we we went down to the pool, and there's lots of people by the pool. We got in the pool. They stayed out of the pool, and were just doing puzzles. That's all they do. They just they just do puzzles. They are obsessed by puzzles. That is their life. So, so that's we were the we were the odd ones out. And you know Thomas Snyder, for example, the guy that went back to back, won the world championship. He was a uh, postdoctoral student in bioengineering at Stanford University and you know I studied phys ed at Castle Hill so that that's the, that's the difference between the very good guys and wow. and us but there's almost a fizz in his in his study and there's definitely a fizz in your study so really you know there's some commonality there and it's funny yeah. that the good guys like Thomas won the world championship and for us this guy was a world champion. And I thought I was very disappointed by the World Puzzle Federation because they were crowning a world champion and I would have thought he would have got a big belt or a gown and there would have been that um, the confetti stuff falling from the sky and a massive big trophy. They gave him this pissant little tiny trophy that just said, you know, um, Thomas Snyder winner. And I thought – and so we got our photo with him because he was the world champion. And it was funny when his, his teammates, when he was playing off for the world title, they gave out – the world title puzzle to all the other competitors. So they're all sitting there doing the puzzles while their mates are going for a world championship. Like it was a really – So not even watching. Not even watching. They, they were just more concerned about if they could do it or not. So it was really – it was a very strange um, – he, he actually liked us because we – we, you know, we were we were patting. He was our Dougie Walters. You know, we we're patting him on the back and saying, "Oh, Thomas, can we get a photo with you?" And he thought we were great because we actually embraced and recognised him for being what a good player he was. But a lot of those guys, for them, it's not about winning a world championship. It's about designing a puzzle that will be used at a world championship. So that's oh, okay. their level is more not so much the competition side, but it was more about the the whole 
Yeah, just so, a multi-layered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's more to it than just. So for you, you were just very singularly, singularly focused on representing Australia, and not, trying to score as many points as I could for Australia. Yeah, and so no, what's no. the what's the status of the Sudoku Championships now and the Australian team? And are you still the puzzle representative? And- well, I resigned. So after I went away, there was one in, um, and it's funny. I ended up with when I did the book, I got John Eels to write the forward to my book, and I'd never actually met John Eels before, but I had a mutual friend, so I emailed him and said, look, do you reckon John would do it? So he put me in touch with John and John wrote the forward, which was great of him. And then I emceed a rugby here and just after the book came out and that was the first time I met him. And and he said to me that he would love to be a dual international. And he said, could I pick him in the Australian team? And I've gone, of course I can. So I remember I was driving home and the phone rang. It was an unknown number. And they lived the days when you could still talk on the phone in your car. And I've just, you know, answered the phone. And he goes, oh, I said, hello. And he goes, oh, I think it's John Eels. I've gone, oh, I've got John Eels. And, uh, and he, yeah, said, he wanted to be Julian National. Could I pick him? And I said, yep. So the next one was in Philadelphia. And there was a lady in Philadelphia. So at the US Nationals, they get 1,000 people turn up. And uh, first place is a spot on the US team and $10,000 in prize money. So it's a really, it's a big event. And there was an Australian lady who had finished third at the US Nationals, but she couldn't make the US team because she was Australia and she was living in Philadelphia where the next championships were going to be. So she's emailed me as the Australian member of the World Puzzle Federation asking me when's the next Australian championships and how can she make the Australian team and sent me a CV of all the Sudoku competitions that she'd been in, wanting to know how does she make the team. So I've emailed her back and said, look, I'll put it to the board. And then I've emailed her back and said, yes, you're in. So I bought her a T-shirt. She went to Philadelphia and John was going to go to Philadelphia but then John got busy and he couldn't go. So he said he wanted to actually play against Skiffo, who was the Australian captain, to see who was the best player in Australia. So we've organised a dinner before the Wallabies played the Springboks here in Perth and we thought a good number for dinner is 12. So he made that the – that was the second Australian Sudoku Championships and John Eels ended up winning that one. So he became the, the official Australian Sudoku champion. And even now, there was a, a there was a quiz in the Australian about six months ago, and it had which former Wallaby captain is a, a former Australian Sudoku champion. It's been on the chase. They've had the same thing on that hard quiz on Channel 2. Yeah. It's had the same thing. John Eels keeps coming up as his Australian champion. So that was the, the year after that was in Hungary. I had a mailing list of about 60 people. I blanket emailed, said, who wants to go? Three said, they'll go. One guy said, can I take my girlfriend? I said, yep, there's your team of four. So they went to Hungary. And by that stage, I realized I'm never going to make an Australian team again. So I resigned from the World Puzzle Federation and I've set up the World Sudoku League, the breakaway <laughs> And I'm the, I'm the global CEO of the World Sudoku League. John Eels is the president and Phil Kearns is the global head of HR. And so we get together now once a year and uh, it's mainly, mainly rugby guys and we'll pick a rugby test somewhere in Australia. We get in there. Friday night, we will play State of Origin Sudoku. We all get in our state blazers and then we pick the top four and then we play a Sudoku test match against whatever the touring rugby team is. So they've always got ex-players that, that come out with those squads and we just name those as the – like the last one we played against was New Zealand. So Andrew Mertens, the former All Black, was the captain of the New Zealand Sudoku team and we play a, a Sudoku test match. Then we have a dinner and uh, – oh, it's great fun. It's my mental isn't health. It? It's my mental yeah. health day of the year. Isn't, isn't, it, um, isn't it interesting that through something that was, you know, like fun and funny and a good idea, you're actually getting to do what you really wanted to do possibly in the yeah. first place is be inside the ropes. Absolutely. With the people of the sport that you probably love the most. Yep, completely. And that, that's exactly it. And it's like people say to me because, I, you know, I played rugby, they say, you know, how do you know? Because, you know, I call John Eels and Phil Kearns are good mates of mine. And when I, I go to Sydney, I normally, you know, I'll stay at Kearns and I'll have dinner with John. 
and people say, oh, do you know them through rugby? And I said, no, I only know them through Sudoku. Like I never, <laughs> I played Colts against Kearnsey, but never met him. But mm. all of a sudden through Sudoku, I've, I've had access to these people that I looked up to and respected so much. And now, now we're peers because I play on the New South Wales team with Phil Kearns and, and uh, I've never been on the Australian team with John because I've never made it since, and he keeps making the Australian team. But yeah. we have dinner together, and I sit next to them at dinner, and and we, you know, we normally play. We played an Australian championship at the SCG. We've played one at the MCG, and with those guys, the access that we get. So we're all in the in the Australian cricketers' dressing room at the SCG having a beer before an Australian Sudoku championships, and and for all of us who'd never got to play for Australia. Everyone's got photos of themselves just sitting in the change <laughs> rooms, and it, it's it's been it's honestly it's been it's been a lot of fun, but just the experience that I've got at a meeting people that I would never have met if it wasn't for me being incredibly poor at Sudoku, it um, it never ceases to be amazing. Even look like you, I'd class you as as a mate of mine, and we only know each other because of Sudoku, yeah, yeah. like it's it's, through, it? through nothing else, you know. It's and and a lot of the people in the book that I did, sort of Anna Mears and, and Alyssa Camplin, again, I'd I'd met them through Sudoku. So it's just this very. It's been a gift that keeps on giving. It really have has. You, have you got any better at it? No, God, no, no. no. I, I I don't play. I don't like the game. It frustrates me. <laughs> and I can't play it. Danny, I, we're I play getting, back to, getting back to golf now, aren't we? Yeah. I, <laughs> I play once a year at our Australian Sudoku Championship at State of Origin Sudoku. I play once a year. If I get one puzzle out, that's been a good night for me. But other than that, I I just I don't play. Never play. Okay. Um, the, the 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 other part of the story, which is I find really interesting and possibly is difficult for you, is that you decided to make it into a film. So I remember when we first met, which must be easily 10 years ago. Yeah. You said, oh, mate, I'm doing a film. We're going to make it a film. Because I'm like, wow, this is just such a great story. Yeah. And it's really worth getting a hold of me if you can to tell the story. It's such a great story. What a great film. And, and But it's how long has it taken to actually get it? Because you're nearly there now, right? We're nearly right? there. We're nearly there. So we, we had a – see, so I told, told the story and there was a film guy, a producer that came up and said, that'd be a great film. And, I'd, again, I'd never, ever thought of – anyone ever making a film about me. That was just, it was so far beyond reality. It would never, ever come up. So when this guy's come up and said, that'd be a great film, I'd like to make a film about you. I thought, yep, yeah, great. So he he had the option. I sold the option of my book to him for two years and nothing came of that. So that fell apart. And then again, through Kernsey, he'd seen me speak a few times. His mate was a film producer. So he came along, watched me speak and thought, yep, yeah, we'd like to take it. So the, he then took the rights over and that I reckon would be, yeah, that's probably six or seven years ago. And they had a, a writer did a version of the script, but it wasn't really true enough to the story. So I sat with a mate of mine who'd written a film before. He was from our rugby club, knew me, knew the boys, knew the story. We sat down for six weeks over Christmas, probably five years ago, wrote it. I flew to Sydney, showed the producer our script and said, look, what do you think of this one? They liked ours because it was sort of truer to form. And then, yeah, over the last five years, we've been – just work. We'd do a draft. We'd send it back to the producers. They'd write notes. It'd come back to us. We'd put their notes in. We'd send it back. So I think we got up to draft number nine, and then we got it to a point. And I reckon I sent you a text probably eighteen months ago saying the script is approved, and, and so it was. It was approved to the point where and I remember the joy of it too. The joy of that text. I know all the exclamation marks, and that that meant that script was. And again, I don't know anything about the film industry, but that meant that script was approved to the point where they could then send that on to directors. So they they attached a director to it and then he's read the script, he's given us his notes, so that's had to come back. We've had to incorporate his notes. Uh, 
so we did that. We sent that back to him. There was a one thing he wanted to change, so we've done that because we put too much meat onto a character and they've said, oh, we put too much meat on it, so we've got to pair it back a bit. So we've got a Zoom meeting tomorrow morning to hopefully then work out how do we just change this last character, which is a it's not one of us, it's one of the, the, it's the boss of the World Puzzle Federation is the character mm. that we're changing at the moment. And then we hopefully if we just pair her back so she's not quite as dominant as we've got her, then they said that's ready then to go for fundraising and then casting and then ideally they want to be shooting in around October of, of this year. So it's it could still all fall over, but at the moment where I think the last thing that the director said, the, the first 80 pages read brilliantly, it's just the back end where we've got this character, we've just got to pair her back a little bit. Are you surprised how difficult it is? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're a writer, you're in advertising, yeah. you've done books, you do poetry, you're on radio. You know, words. Word. You're a storyteller. Words are your thing. Yeah. Are you surprised how difficult it is to to get a movie to that point? Absolutely. And the, and the main thing for me is I. And again, I don't know anything about. Like I sit like most people, and I I watch a movie, and I walk out, and I've either loved it, or I've liked it, or I didn't like it, or I couldn't care less about it. But I don't. And that's it. That's that's as that's as deep as I think about a movie, whether I like it or I don't like it. But you, when you get movie people looking at it, and they're looking at character arcs and you know all these all these things that actually make a movie a good movie there's all these things that your average punter doesn't know about doesn't particularly want to know about and doesn't care about as long as they come out and enjoy it they don't care that they've been on this journey with it with a particular character and that's they like him because he's done this and he's overcome these obstacles and and his character arc is he's gone from you know point a he's got to end up at point b i didn't know any of that existed so for me that's been the biggest learning curve for me and the guy I've been writing it with, he's he understands all that stuff, which is great. I know the story and I can, you know, help I can come up but with an idea for a scene or whatever it might be. But doesn't doesn't it go like the in terms of the character arc, yeah. Doesn't isn't the story the story? I mean, isn't the story that you wanted to do this? You picked up your mates and then the fun and the joy and the, you know, hilarity of the whole thing. Yep. And the jeopardy, right? So there's yep. a definite element of jeopardy. Yep. Isn't that enough? Or do you have to then fabricate more to make it a um, yeah, so we so we've we've had to put because you've got to have conflict in films and obstacles and stuff to overcome. Whereas we, you know, I basically it was four white guys picked ourselves in the Australian team, went to India, came last. That, right. that's, Is that's, there a problem that it's four white guys now? It it would be. It's now a, we're, it's a period piece is what we're calling <laughs> it, which is bizarre, but it's a period piece because that's okay. at the time that was okay to do. Now it wouldn't be okay to do in a film okay. sense, but in that in that particular period of 2008 when we went away that's fine so that we're going to stay genuine to a period piece that's going to be set in that time in that situation so so yeah so that 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 is the, the period that you know i went yep last came home but we've so we've had to build in you know conflicts between initially a conflict between two of the guys in the team that they could seen there's some conflict between me and my wife with the expense of us having to fund the trip ourselves so and it, it all makes it, it's all it's all great and it's all good stories and if it was just that straight A to B as it is now that's that's the documentary so for it to be the movie you've got to be able to get okay. on board and, and feel sorry for guys and attach yourselves to others and and be worried oh god they're going to be kicked out and all this sort of stuff so it's it's building all all those things I yeah I, I didn't realise there was that much detail and I, I remember I, I met up with Shane Jacobson who played Kenny as you know. Um, at a function one time and he said people often come up to him and say they've got an idea for a film and he says to them if you're not prepared to put 10 years of your life into this thing don't talk to me about it 
And, yeah. and I've now realised that that's and like we're at probably yeah we're probably close to ten years and we're yeah. almost, we're almost there. People think I mean look some movies come out quick. The one about um, what was that lady Michelle Payne and that and the horse that she oh, yeah, yeah 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 the, what was that, the whatever that Melbourne Cup movie that came out within a couple of years. That that's very unusual for it to come out that quick. Most films they do take between seven and ten years to actually from sort of the first idea of it to through all those drafts of the scripts people changing it, different opinions to making it actually come to life. So it's been a – and I think we thought – if you like, it's like home builders. All home builders or tradesmen have got – at any one time, so they've always got something to do, whereas me and my mate, we had one script. So we'd get the notes back from the director. We'd sit down for two weeks, redo the script, send it back to them because that's all we had to do. But they've got other projects, so it might be – two or three months okay. before, it, before it comes back to us again. Then we do it in two weeks, send it back. Then we'd have to wait another two or three months for it to come back. So it's been – that side of it has been frustrating, but I understand that not everyone is just solely invested in just our script like we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not just about you, Mick. No, which is – you know, that's the disappointing well, thing, Andrew. funnily <laughs> enough, it is just about you. So, <laughs> yeah. Listen, um, we have gone a long way from the game of golf, but I, I think it's a great story. It's a, I've really enjoyed talking to you. No, thank you. So thanks for your time. and no, your, um and your generosity, and, and really, if you haven't seen Mick speak, or you've got a sports club, or a, I don't know, I, you were at a function the other day for school sp- principals, print school principals, yeah. So it's um, it's a, as I say, it's a, it, it's a genuinely a great Australian story, and one that um, I think you'll like if you when you see it in the. So the, what's the best way for people to get you? Just the, I think the just, just go to yeah, mickcollis.com, double L double S in collis.com, and um, jump on and. Yeah, just have a sniff around on there and if there's anything you like, let me know. All right, good on you, Mick. Great to chat. Thanks, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Look after yourself. So there he is, Mick Collis. If you want to get a hold of him, go to mickcollis, double L, double S, dot com and uh, check him out there. Really, really fun, as you can see, and a, a really great Australian story. And hopefully for him and his mates... Fingers crossed, they start production in October, which means the movie will be another two years away. But really good. All right, back to golf, golf, proper golf, golf instructor, big deal, coming up from America. That is our next podcast. But for now, I just wanted to just have a bloody great Australian story, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, let's know. You can get a hold of me at Andrew Dado at Instagram or something like that. All right, thanks for listening. I'll see ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.